flying around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop him black gang candy stripes. Look at him loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table, a show dedicated to the people of our Appalachian region who produce, prepare, and preserve our regional foods and agricultural products. This is your hostess, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and arranged by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. And Emmy Sunshine is from Madisonville, Tennessee. She's only 14 years old, and uh, she recorded that when she was nine. Just real proud of Emmy Sunshine. Well, it is springtime here in East Tennessee. It's quite a bit early, but it is spring. The grass is growing and all of the new spring greens are showing themselves. Just the time of year when we want to make a big mess of springtime greens. On this episode of the Tennessee Farm Table, we'll hear all about Appalachian spring greens and how these greens are prepared with James Beard award-winning food writer Ronnie Lundy. Ronnie reads from her book, Vittles, specifically the chapter entitled, Messing with Greens. And Ronnie also shares a couple of memories of her experiences as a music and food reporter in the late 80s when she interviewed Bill Monroe on several occasions. Also, Fred Sausman visits with the old Pilot Hill General Store in Philadelphia, Tennessee on his Potluck Radio segment. And I've got news of a few regional events that are farm and food in focus, brought to our community by area nonprofit organizations. Thank you so much for being our guest today at our Big Tennessee table. Now let's get started. Pokeweed, greasy greens, dandelion greens. In this part of the country, early spring means making a mess of tender new greens to cleanse the blood and to get the season started off right. Ronnie Lundy is going to share with us her chapter from her book, Vittles, dedicated to this annual springtime activity in the Mountain South right now. Look at all this nice food. So this is from Vittles, um, an Appalachian journey with recipes. And this chapter is called Messing with Greens. Winter in the mountains begins with the first bowl of soup beans, corn popped later to fuel the crisp early night with conversation. In good years, the fun of getting cozy seems to last until little Christmas, the end of the holidays on January 6th. Ah, but then the slow slide into cabin fever begins. It's not that winter doesn't have its pleasures in the mountains, it's just that it sticks around too long. 
That may be why mountain dwellers seem to have an absolute passion for wild spring greens. The more pungent, the better. That's why they start scouting the landscape in the first warm days for the telltale signs of ramps, most famously, but also for branch lettuce and then creases. It's why they look for early poke and pick its tiny tender leaves. And that love of greens extends as long as it can, right through the last of the fall mustard and kale in the garden. Each green has its own distinct flavor and texture, and certain greens are cooked one way, while others are best made another. And while there are plenty of methods for cooking these greens, they can largely be grouped into three families. Lettuces for killing, salad, and pot liquor. Lettuces for killing. Families take to the woods to gather up a mess, meaning enough to feed everybody, of greens and come home to fry up a skillet of bacon. The cooked bacon is crumbled to be added with chopped green onions on the finished dish, and the hot bacon grease is used to dress the crisp greens, also doused with cider vinegar, a dose of salt, and black pepper. Branch lettuce is one of the favorites for killing. It gets its name because it can be found along the edges of icy mountain springs or branches in the earliest spring. Not actually a lettuce, it's a variety of saxifraga with toothy, fuzzy leaves that offer just a bit of resistance when you bite and a taste that is tart and cleansing. Of course, killed or kilt lettuce, so-called because the hot dressing wilts or kills the greens, can be made with any crisp garden salad green. Even in the city, I knew that spring was in the air when my mother announced that killed lettuce was for supper. She used the best iceberg lettuce she could find. These days, I gravitate toward mache and arugula mixed with young romaine. My mother would make a skillet of cornbread, and that would be our whole meal, something primal and reviving in that big bowl of hot dressed greens. Salad. Salad isn't salad. A salad of greens in the South is made by cooking particular fresh greens fairly quickly in a skillet of hot bacon grease. In the mountains, we make salad with a variety of wild greens. The most famous of these is poke salad, of course, and well, if you have that album by Tony Joe White that spells it P-O-L-K-S-A-L-A-D, my guess is you shouldn't blame that Louisiana boy. That prissy spelling was likely fotched on by a record label on one of the coasts, bless its heart. Poke, P-O-K-E, is short for pokeweed, a wild and profuse plant with leaves that are edible only in the very early spring and only if cooked properly. It's a bother to prepare, but we bothered because the taste, similar to spinach but brighter and tangier, is one a body begins to crave. Poke is said to have tonic and reviving qualities, and while I can't make any such health claims for it, I know I always feel pert after eating a mess. We harvested only leaves smaller than your hand, and no other potentially lethal part of the pokeweed was consumed. After rinsing them well, we boiled the poke greens in a big pot of water for three minutes uncovered, and then thoroughly drained the water. We'd repeat the process. And some folks boiled and drained as many as four times. I rinsed the leaves after the second draining, then shook and patted them dry with a tea towel. The mess was then cooked in bacon grease in a skillet with chopped up green onion until everything was tender and then eaten with cornbread. Poke was not the only wild green to get the salad treatment, and that's salad, S-A-L-L-E-T. Dock, purslane, lamb's quarters, and in some parts of the mountains, tiny new fiddlehead ferns are favorites. 
When my parents lived in Detroit during World War II so my daddy could work in the factories, my mother gathered dandelion and other wild greens from the medium of a boulevard. She told me she couldn't find kale or mustard in the grocery, but the tender greens cooked with bacon provided a taste of home. Creasy greens, known elsewhere as land creases, are a type of mustard that grows both wild and cultivated in the mountains. Similar in flavor to watercress, creases are both stronger in taste and firm in texture. So while some folks these days eat them snipped raw into a salad, the preferred way of dealing with them in Southern Appalachia was to cook them into salad. They shrink in the cooking considerably, so it takes a mighty big amount to feed a family, and that's why beaten eggs were often scrambled into the skillet. Sochan, or Sochani, is another wild spring green, particularly beloved by the Cherokee. Growing profusely along creeks and rivers, when it comes into maturity, this coneflower in the sunflower family will bear bright yellow daisy-like flowers but the edible leaves of the plant are gathered when young and tender, well before bloom time in the early spring. Sochan leaves should be rinsed well and then covered with water and simmered until tender before draining well. They can then be made into salad. The green is also good in stews and the Cherokee often added it to a pot of hominy. Once a pungent mountain secret, deliciously garlicky spring ramps now show up in restaurants all around the country and there is some worry that they are being badly harvested to meet this demand. Old timers knew that ramps should not be pulled from the ground, root and all. They should be harvested with a sharp knife, cutting the bulb a bit above the rootstock and leaving that root to spread and regenerate a new crop the next spring. Many folks cooked the chopped up ramp leaves and bulbs as described for salad, but generally they were combined with potatoes and or eggs and country ham. Pot liquor. Greens are not only a spring tonic in the mountains, they provide vitamins, minerals, and flavor in the early part of the winter. Now, collards thrive in the sandy soils and hotter climate of the deep and coastal south, but they are very rarely among the greens preferred for growing and eating in the southern Appalachians. The Scots-Irish brought kale to the region, and that sturdy leaf was ballast in the pot. Mustard and turnip are also prized sometimes added to the kettle for bite to kale's more mineral tang, or cooked and eaten alone. Hardy characters, all three, can sometimes be found in the long-harvested garden plot poking up through the snow. This sturdiness <laughs> calls for a long, slow braise with a chunk of pork for seasoning. Like soup beans, a bowl of greens might serve as the center of a wintertime supper. Beloved sometimes even more than the tender greens, the rich broth called pot liquor marries the essence of the greens with the umami of the pork and is best consumed sopped up with absorbent cornbread. Now, schisms exist over whether the best method to do that is to dunk a wedge or crumble it in. I, however, am ecumenical and appreciate both. And you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. We're visiting today with Ronnie Lundy, and she has read her chapter entitled Messing with Greens from her James Beard award-winning book, Vittles. Details and contact information on Ronnie at RonnieLundy.com. Also, I've got all these links and everything on my website for all of my guests and events that I mentioned, TennesseeFarmTable.com, under that link that says Listen to the Show. 
A little later in the show, Ronnie shares her experiences of interviewing Bill Monroe, as she did on several occasions, while writing about food and music in Louisville, Kentucky. After a word from our sponsor, we'll hear from Fred Sossman and his Potluck Radio segment on the old Pilot Hill General Store in Philadelphia, Tennessee. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table is brought to you in part by Century Harvest Farms and Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. A sustainable farm in East Tennessee producing 100% grass-fed beef and other wholesome farm products. Preservative-free grass-fed charcuterie, preserves, pickles, and jams. Also home to the community-serving, food-insecurity-fighting Century Harvest Farms Foundation. Details at CenturyHarvest.com This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Saussman. Donnie and Denise Hall, formerly of Panama City, Florida, crisscrossed America looking for an old country store to call their own. I picked up a real estate book and opened it up just to the very center of the book, and there it was. This store was for sale. Sad-looking little picture. You know, you looked at it, and I said, well, that's a, that'd be a nice start, you know. That decaying old store was in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Tennessee. The day of the auction, they had opened up the doors and auctioned everything out. The scales, the counters, the picture, anything that could be auctioned off except the shelves. Well, when the store, when we originally bought it, I mean, the weeds had grown up above the windows, and I mean, it was pretty bad. Donnie and Denise converted that old country store into a restaurant, the old Pilot Hill General Store. You don't reserve a table at old Pilot Hill, but you have to reserve ribs. You have to call ahead and make sure you get some on Friday or Saturday, because usually Friday afternoon by 5 o'clock we're sold out. Donnie Hall's barbecue philosophy is a lot like the pace of his new life in East Tennessee. A slow-cooked, hand-rubbed, slow-cooked barbecue. The slower the better. We do our own barbecue sauce. I make my own rub. Out of anywhere we've been, I'm saying out west, Colorado, Montana, you know, south, north, anywhere we've been, nothing compares to the beauty here. We wanted to kind of honor this area. The lady that holds the record right now, she says, last time I was in here was 85 years ago. For Potluck Radio in Philadelphia, Tennessee, I'm Fred Sausman. This is Daniel Eisenbry, public health educator at the Knox County Health Department, and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. Broadcasting on the radio waves from Knoxville on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on East Tennessee's own community station, WDVX. And here are a couple of events that are food and farming in nature brought to us by area nonprofits I thought you might want to know about. As part of IAM's Nature Center Take Action Month, IAM's Nature Center and Slow Food Tennessee Valley will be co-hosting a potluck dinner that celebrates locally raised foods, a seed swap, 
a seed talk from John Koykendall, and a showing of the documentary featuring John Koykendall and his life as a seed saver entitled Deeply Rooted, John Koykendall's Journey to Save Our Seeds and Stories. This event takes place at IAM's Nature Center on Sunday, March 31st from 5 o'clock until 8 p.m. There is no charge for this event. If you'd like to participate in the seed swap at this event on that evening, donate any heirloom, non-GMO, non-hybrid, open-pollinated seeds, and the seeds don't have to be organic. And be sure the seeds are dried thoroughly, and bring the seeds labeled in envelopes with you with the label of the common name and the cultivar if you know it. Label the date harvested or purchased, and place in sealed bags or containers that keep the seed dry. Century Harvest Farms Foundation and Second Harvest Food Bank East Tennessee will be co-hosting Chartreuterie and Cocktails, a signature event to raise awareness and establish support for their collaborative efforts of addressing food insecurity in East Tennessee. Funds raised will be dedicated to adopting a field of fresh produce to provide for 7,200 individuals and beef from 10 grass-fed steers, which will be enough to provide ground beef to 6,000 individuals. This event will be an evening of charcuterie, cocktails, and conversation, and will take place Friday, April 25th, from 5 until 7.30 at the Central Collective at 923 North Central Street in downtown Knoxville, and that's just a little bit beyond Magpie's. Tickets and details by searching for Century Harvest Farms Foundation on Facebook. And as always, information and links to all of these events are always available on my website, TennesseeFarmTable.com, under that link that says Listen to the Show. So let's hear from Ronnie again now about a couple of experiences that she had while interviewing the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe. Bill just kind of, I think, lost track of the fact that I was reporting, sort of, you know, like I was the girl reporter. And so he talked about things that he hadn't talked about before, and then he invited Pat and me to come to his farm in Tennessee, which to my knowledge, which may be wrong, but to my knowledge, I was the first reporter that had ever been invited there. Because usually what he would do is he would invite you to come to Tennessee and to meet him at this restaurant that he went to, this kind of mom and pop restaurant in, in Gallatin or one of the little towns near where his, his farm was. And, um, and it, it was a ritual there was that he would, um, he would come in and people would say, oh, Mr. Monroe, Mr. Monroe, and he would give quarters to people. <laughs> you know, it was like uh, when, he, when he died um, uh, and, and I went to the funeral in Rosine, uh, where there was the open coffin, there were quarters in the coffin. And it, <laughs> so this is the complexity of the Bill Monroe story. Uh, which is that some of the people were like, oh, you know, what a sweet story. And then some of the people in the back were like, yeah, that's everybody who ever played for him, <laughs> giving him back their wages, you know, because, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he was not, so So I, uh, and then I'll send you another piece that had this very limited, a thing that John T. did uh, when I was sick, 
they did a limited edition of a story that I wrote that begins by saying he was not a sweet old man. Mm-hmm. And if you if you don't understand that, then you haven't really listened to the ferocity of his chop on Mule Skinner Blues. When he was a person who had a great deal of bitterness and um, a sense of injustice having been done to him mm-hmm. and a very large desire to set that right. And that's the power of his music. You know, that's why when I was coming up, you could stand on the side of the stage with David Grisman and Sam Bush and Tim O'Brien, and they would just be in awe of this old man just, you know, slamming it up there. One of the things that people don't understand is that until Monroe came along, the mandolin was the girl's instrument. or It was the instrument that you gave to the person who didn't know how to really play an instrument, Mm -hmm. and they strummed it. It was, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the role of the mandolin. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Bill is the youngest child, and Charlie gets the guitar, Mm -hmm. and Birch gets the fiddle. And, you know, Bill is, um, he was just, I mean, he, he could be totally gracious and um, warm, and then he could be one of the meanest people Ever. So I, I wrote the piece for the Courier-Journal probably in the early 1980s. It was right after he had uh, received a reprieve from cancer. And so he was kind of, I think he was kind of introspective. So Pat and I went to the farm. And it was really interesting because Pat didn't know what I knew about the interview. So Monroe would be telling a story and I wouldn't be writing and Pat would be going, write that down, stop, stop. I know this story. I don't have to write it down. Let's let him forget that I'm writing down what yeah, he's saying. Right. And then he would say something else and I, that I'd never heard before, yeah. you know, be able to write it. But um, part of the build-up to doing a second interview that I did with him, I think, was that I promised him I'd make him a cake. He was coming to Louisville on his birthday, and he said, will you make me a cake? And I said, sure, what what kind of cake do you want? And he said, well, I, I want an apple stack cake, but do you know what that is? And I said, I most certainly do. My dad and Bill and Roe were born on the same day, mm-hmm. and no two people could have been more different in the universe, you know. But my dad's favorite cake was apple stack cake, you know, so I made him an apple stack cake, and I always say that was what won his heart. I I don't think that's necessarily true. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website tennesseefarmtable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.